This morning we will draw to close the series that we've been in on the church, the called out. And so I want to draw your attention to Revelation chapter 21. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. When you find verses 9 to verse 27, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read God's word together. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 9. You can stand. This is the Apostle John writing. He says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysopase, the eleventh Jacinth, the twelfth Amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us to understand your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would move upon our hearts, that we would be open, that we would be ready to receive what you're going to do. Through this word, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
One of the benefits of growing up in southern Missouri is that the fact that uh, southern gospel music is all over the place. I mean, you can't get away from it in southern Missouri, and I'm sure it's other places it's the same. I mean, one of the the radio stations that I used to listen to on a regular basis was 103.9, the legend, the home of southern gospitality. And that's that's how they do it down there. I mean, and everything is very, very... I mean, you, you go to a revival service, it's Southern Gospel music. I mean, you go to a youth event, there's going to have some twinge of Southern Gospel music at that time mixed with a little jars of clay. But, but there's going to be some sort of Southern Gospel experience as you go anywhere down in the South like that. And, um, and I found myself even getting older, I, I thought, you know, I, I've moved away from Southern Gospel music and uh, moved on to, you know, what I thought was bigger and better things. But, but always I find myself going back to Southern Gospel music. Um, that's, that's one of the, the, the playlists that I have in my office. But most of the time I find myself listening to Southern Gospel music when I'm working on projects outside. And I don't know if that speaks something about the way I do projects, but I find that Southern Gospel music makes me happy. And when I'm doing projects like working on a car or working on something that's you know, going to obviously lead to frustration and anger. I want to start out being happy. And, and most of the time with Southern Gospel music, one of the things that, that, it, that it focuses on, I think this is one of the great benefits of Southern Gospel music, is that it focuses many times on heaven. It focuses on what is to come. It focuses on what we have to look forward to, how we can be happy. I mean, I think of songs like, um, like Beulah Land. It's a great song. Used to be one of my favorites. Love the song. Uh, this old house with the cathedrals, or uh, moving on up to glory land. I mean, that's just it's fun, you know. I mean, it, everybody wants to move on up to glory land, right? I mean, it's a great, great, you know, thing to sing about. Or, or that old song that uh, has been along for a, a long time. Will the circle be unbroken? You remember that one? You remember the words to that song? Will the circle be unbroken? It goes like this: it says um, there are loved ones in the glory whose dear forms you often miss. When you close your earthly story, will you join them in their bliss? I mean, that sounds wonderful. Will the circle be unbroken? By and by is a better home awaiting in the sky. Last verse says, one by one their seats were emptied. One by one they went away. Now the family is parted. Will it be complete one day? Will the circle be unbroken? By and by is a better home awaiting in the sky. Now, a lot of these songs, they talk about reunion, don't they? They talk about seeing your family, those who have gone on before you, getting to reunite with those people. So, so when you think about heaven, when somebody says the word heaven, what do, you, what do you think about? What is it that begins to conjure up in your mind? Is it reunion? Is it, uh, is it your friends? That have gone on before you? Is it, is it your spouse that's gone on before you? Or, or, or the fact that, I mean, heaven's a really great place. There, there's no sickness. There's no death. There's no illness. There's no problems. There's no crying. All of that, being in the presence of God, th- there is none of those bad things that we associate with life here on this planet. I mean, imagine if, you, if there was a place where, where your family was there, your family was there. There was a place where there was no sickness. There, there, there's no unhappiness. And you could do anything. You could do everything that you've always wanted to do. I mean, you could travel the world. You could see the sights. 
You could climb up mountains. You could go and see waterfalls. You, you, could, uh, you could be the best at any sport you ever played. Any sport. You could play it all day long and get, not get tired of it. You could, you could go out and you could uh, eat perfectly prepared meals without ever having to worry about cleaning up afterwards or paying for it or the calories that were going to, gonna be coming into your body, right? You wouldn't have to worry about any of that. You could, you could lay on the beach all day and not feel guilty about it. You could, uh, you could go out and, and jump out of a plane with a parachute, not worrying whether or not the chute was going to open. I mean, there's no fear, nothing. Everything could be yours. I mean, if you could choose a place like that, or choose a place where the only person that was going to be there was God, which do you think you'd choose? I mean, if you have some hesitancy about that, then you're probably not yet ready for heaven. Because heaven, the point of heaven, is not reunion. It's not T-bone steaks and it's not skydiving. The point of heaven is God. That is the point. He is the centerpiece of heaven. He is what heaven is all about. It's God. As we look at this text, we're coming into a, a story, as it were. This is kind of the closing chapter of what we have in the Scriptures, but it's really the beginning chapter of something that is far greater than we could possibly imagine or that we've ever experienced. But here we find kind of this ending to something that began back at the very beginning of the Scriptures. It's, it's a story, and it's, it's God's story. And it's the story of our lives because all of our smaller stories fit into this one great, cosmic, large, humongous story, and that story belongs to God. But sometimes what we do is we act as though the story is really all about us. And we do that, maybe we don't actually say that, but we act like that's the case because we, we live our lives as though we're the centerpiece, as though we're the main character of the story. And and that's a danger for us. So it's really important for us to, at the very outset of this kind of a message, to begin to pull back and look at this great big story. Now, I'm going to take just a moment to speak to something before we continue on. Does everyone know what I'm about to say? It's a dirt dauber, people. Okay? If you get stung, we'll find something to cure you, but I think you'll be okay. All right? Don't worry about the wasp. It is a demonic being. And it will distract you from everything I'm going to say. Okay? We clear? Everybody good? All right. Let's move forward. If he comes up here, I'll kill him with my bare hands, okay? No problems. All right. When I was a kid, we would uh, go on vacations. Oftentimes, we'd go camping. But on this one particular year, we decided that, or my parents decided, I didn't pay for it. But it, it, we went to this uh, this. Christian resort camp that was out in Colorado, and uh, it was called Camp, uh, it was Horn Creek Camp is what it was called, but it was a, it was a, a family resort kind of place. Well, at the, uh, when you go there, you, you spend the entire week at this resort, and one of the neat things that they do is they, on Thursday, after you're kind of acclimatized, they, they take whoever wants to go all the way up, up to the summit of Horn Peak, 
and this mountain, I mean, it's not a small one. I mean, you don't have to, you know, climb as though you're Tom Cruise or something, but it's, 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 it's a big, big hill. I mean, it's 13,450 feet tall. I mean, it's a, a good size hill. It takes you all day and, uh, to get up and back. And, uh, I mean, you come, you know, track it in and it's late in the, the afternoon, early evening. But anyway, we would go up this mountain and, and I remember as we were walking up the mountain, you're, you're, you're kind of walking down into these areas with tree and underbrush, and then you're walking up, and the trail just kind of weaves in and out in different places. And there's, you know, there's large rocks in the path, so you have to make sure that you're focused on what you're doing and you're not tripping over, you know, tree branches or, or roots or other rocks. And, and so you're constantly looking down, at least I was. And I mean, there's some beautiful things to look at in this, you know, pile of woods. But, I mean, for the most part, it's really not that pretty. I mean, some things are pretty. It's green and, you know, there's, you know, fresh things, whatever. But there's not a whole lot of flowers. But it's just you're walking down through this area and up and, uh, and around these, these winding paths. But I remember it was, it was that moment when we exited the tree line. And, and it was almost like the entire world just became very big. Everything became huge. And as you looked up, as I looked up in front of me, I could see the summit, and it was just majestic. They're standing right in front of me. And, and as I turned around and looked, I'd, I had already come out of the tree line. I turned around and I looked, and for miles, I could see this incredible forest that lay out before me. I mean, the sky stretched on for miles upon miles, and it was beautiful because I wasn't looking at the ground anymore. And I think that's what we do sometimes with the Christian life. Often as we become so narrow focused on what's happening right now in our lives and how sometimes it's really difficult. Sometimes we stumble over the rock. Sometimes we, we, uh, we trip over the root. But if we can take just a moment to look at the entire picture, to see the summit, to see where we're headed, I think sometimes it's really helpful for us, helpful, helpful for us to be able to walk in this Christian life. So let's look at this big story just for a little bit. This sermon is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. We're going to take a good amount of time to look at the story and then see how that story impacts what we just read in the text together. Now, when we look at the story, I want you to remember five key words that will kind of help guide us throughout this story. The first one is obviously creation. The second is fall. The third is promise. Fourth is rescue. And the final is return. So let's look at this idea of creation. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 is where it all begins. God is the one who, who creates everything. And every single thing he creates was good. In fact, it says in Genesis 1.1 that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he creates Everything. He creates mountains and they're majestic and glorious. He, 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 he creates lakes and rivers and valleys and deserts and all of the beautiful places that we find in the world. He creates every single creature so that all of the water, all of the land is just teeming with life and with noise and all of it is for his glory. Then look what he does. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, 
He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates Adam and Eve. And God, he walks with them. He, he meets with them on a regular basis. He, he talks with them. He's dwelling with them there in the garden. And, and they know God intimately. And they love God. And he loves them and he's with them. This was the intended purpose of creation. God created this world so that he could dwell with his people, so that they would worship him, so that they would love him because of his unsearchable wonders. But then the worst thing that could happen happens. There's a fall. Adam and Eve, they disobey They listen to the serpent and his words instead of listening to God and his words. They chase after what they can earn for themselves instead of trusting in God to be the one that will give them every single thing that they need. They listen to the words of the serpent. The serpent whispers to them, God isn't going to take care of you. God, God's holding out on you. God's, God's got some really great stuff, but he just won't let you have it because he knows when you have it, you'll be just like him. But this, Satan whispers similar things in our ears, doesn't he? He does. He says things like, you deserve that. You deserve to have that. You can do whatever you want to do. You can do whatever you want to do, whatever makes you happy. God wants you to be happy, so do whatever makes you happy. You're the one who's in charge of your destiny. Follow your dreams. Do what you want to do. This is the same kind of voice that Adam and Eve heard. So they listen to this ancient dragon. They they fall into rebellion against the one who created them. And as a result, every single one of us have been affected by their sin. Not only do we do sinful things, but we have by nature been deformed by sin so that, so that we don't reflect the one whom we are to reflect. We're, we're like distorted mirrors. So instead of what we were purposed to do is as God's light and his image would shine upon us, we would reflect that light, that image back to him. But now what we try to do is we're bent and twisted and we receive that image and we try to reflect that image and glory back upon ourselves. That's what we do. We're distorted. But not only us, the entire world itself is deformed, is broken as a result of our sin. Paul says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning together as in the pains of childbirth until now. So there's this, there's this cosmic suffering going on because of the fall of humanity. So the oceans are not controllable. The, the oceans, they, they bring about death and horrific problems with tsunamis. The, 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 the vegetation is not as though it should be. There's toil, there is hardship, there's genocide, there's hunger and starvation, there's adultery and murder, there's pornography, there's human trafficking, there's illness and pain, there's death. It's a broken world. And ultimately, what happens here in the story is God's presence is removed. Adam and Eve, they're, they're expelled from the garden. 
You look down at verse 23 in chapter 3, it says that the Lord God sent Adam out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So the path is closed. No access to God. No access to his promises because of sin. But then God, notice, we've got creation, fall, now promise. God gives this promise and a whole host of promises that to come afterwards. But he gives an amazing promise even to Adam and Eve while he's cursing the serpent. We remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall crush your head. And you shall crush his heel. This is the first declaration that God is going to do something. Because the assumption would be God doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to do anything. He made a creation that was good. That creation turned against him. He could destroy us and be completely justified. But here it says that he's going to do something to fix the problem. He's going to bring about restoration. He's going to destroy the great liar and through the woman's seed bring about one who would reverse the curse. So throughout the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, we keep watching Eve's line. Genealogy after genealogy is following this line of Eve looking for the one who is going to come and destroy the serpent, the one who's going to come and restore all things, the one who's going to bring once again the presence of God back to the people. And God himself, he remains the focus of the story. At no point does God ever become the second character in the story. He's always the main focus. So God gives a promise that there will be a people called after his name. God chooses Abraham. And he promises him this. He says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So through Abraham, God makes for himself a nation. And this nation was going to prepare the world for the coming of that offspring, of Eve's offspring. So he gives to them a covenant. We remember the story of the Old Testament. God's story continues through that Old Testament story. He rescues the people of Israel from their bondage, from their slavery to the Egyptians. He, he calls them out into the wilderness and he makes a covenant with them. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Here are the commandments that you must do in order to live among my presence. They display his majesty and his glory through their obedience to his covenant. And through that law that he gives them, all of the people, eventually, they're shown that they really need Eve's offspring. They really need someone to come and fix this sin problem because God's holiness is too great. No matter how many animals are sacrificed, no matter how many bulls are, are burned up on the altar, it's never going to be enough. There's just this continual cycle of death after death, after death, even into the temple era with Solomon, with thousands upon thousands of dead animal carcasses piled up in the temple complex. There's never going to be enough sacrifice. People of Israel have shown the truth of this by that practice of sacrifice. 
The only way that sin can be dealt with is through the payment of this penalty, through sacrifice. And that's why Paul goes on in the New Testament and he says that the wages of sin, what you earn for your sin, is death. So every Israelite and every single person on the planet is standing before God completely and utterly condemned. We're sinners. We've pledged ourselves to the reign of the snake instead of the creator of all things, just like Adam and Eve. And we cannot right the wrong. Apostle Paul, he says, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we were created for the purpose of living in the presence of God. To worship God, to love God, but we can't. We can't. Our sin, instead of making us friends with God, has now made us enemies of God. So God promises Eve that he will send one who can crush the power of Satan and reverse the curse, bringing us back into this restored relationship with God. But how could one man do this? I mean, we've looked all over, we've scoured the Old Testament to try and find the man. Moses, could he do it? No. He didn't even get get to go in the promised land. David, well, he looks promising. I mean, he was the guy after God's own heart, but then he commits adultery and then he murders a guy. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these men who kind of pop up as maybe their possibilities, but every single time they fail. In order for us to be restored to our place in God's creation. (coughs) The serpent has to be defeated by a man. But what man could do this? Only God in the flesh could do this. Which brings us to the rescue. The promise leads us then to God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. God promised to crush the serpent and reverse the curse through Eve's offspring. Jesus... We find in the New Testament, he is the word of God, the very son of God, and he becomes flesh and blood. He becomes the one and only God-man. That's what John says he has come to do. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason that the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He defeats Satan in the wilderness and dominates this dark kingdom. He ushers in his own kingdom. Now, if Jesus would have simply set up his kingdom like Satan wanted him to do, you remember the the temptations. Satan says, if you'll do this, if you'll do this, I'll give you this kingdom. If you'll bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of the the nations of the world. If Jesus had done that, and even if he had listened to his own disciples when Peter said, you don't have to die you don't have to die in order for us to have this kingdom here right now, if he'd have listened to Peter... He would have lost it all. And all of us would be condemned for all of eternity because there would be no gospel. There wouldn't be hope. So Christ, he sets up his kingdom, but it's drastically different than what we would have assumed it was going to be like. Instead of being enthroned in a royal palace, he's enthroned on a cross. Instead of of wearing royal robes on his shoulders, he shoulders the penalty of all of our sin. That's what he does. Jesus dies to pay the debt of our guilt. He's placed in a tomb for three days, and after those three days, he's raised to life. And this is not just simply a declaration that he is 
that he was God's son. And so God is saying, I affirm the fact that he is my son. Oftentimes, that's where we stop with the resurrection. That's true, but it's even more than that. There's more going on at the resurrection than simply that. Jesus is the resurrected one. He is the firstborn of a completely new creation life. His resurrection is a new beginning. And he's leading his people into this new creation. Paul says he is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So after he's resurrected, he ascends to the heavens with his father and he reigns there. And this is the place of the story in which we find ourselves now. Christ is reigning from the heavens and we are to proclaim the goodness of Christ, proclaim the gospel of Christ, make disciples of Jesus Christ now until he returns to judge the living and the dead. So we await the return, which is that final piece. So as we think about this grand story of God, that, that he's reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ for his own glory, and that his aim is to ultimately to restore the relationship between God and man to bring back this presence, it ought to help us understand this passage just a little bit better, with a little bit more clarity. I want, us, I want us to look at the scene here. It's a very incredibly complex passage of Scripture, as is most of the book of Revelation. But at the very beginning of our text, John sees this, he says, a great high mountain. Now, in Isaiah chapter 2, God promises to make the mountain of the house of the Lord the highest of the mountains. That's what he promises. And so, and John, from this mountain, he begins to see a city that, uh, that seems itself to be, to be life-giving. It's almost throbbing with life. It radiates like a semi-translucent jasper stone that shines out like crystal. I mean, it, and jasper, if you're not familiar with what jasper is, it's like a, it's like a reddish, really dark orangish kind of stone. He's saying it's, it's almost translucent. It looks like a flame. That's what he's saying. It looks like it's on fire. The city of, of, of God is like a flame. Why? Well, because it's like God. What does it say about God in the scriptures? In the book of Hebrews, it says he is a consuming fire. So the city looks like God because the city itself has been conformed into the image of God. It looks like the one who made it. So John describes the wall. He describes the gates and the foundation of the city. Look at verse 12 again. He says, it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gates were 12 angels, and on the angels, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, they were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the city is really very similar to the camp of Israel, as the 12 tribes of Israel when they would set camp, three of the tribes would be on each side of the tabernacle. And so around the tabernacle, you would have three tribes to the east, three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the west, and they would surround the tabernacle, always watching inward about what God was doing. And then we have angels at the gates, or as the gates. And that ought to remind us of what happened in the book of Genesis. 
Here the angels are there as, as beings who are to guard the path through the tree of life. Then we have the names of the apostles. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Their names are inscribed on the gates, and the names of the 12 apostles are inscribed on the foundations of the wall. And what this means is that, that all of God's people, both in the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant, all of God's people will be present. They will enjoy life in the presence of God in this new temple that is coming down from heaven. So John describes then the measurements of the city and the materials which everything is made with. He says that the city itself is foursquare. It's a perfect cube. Do you remember the other perfect cube in the scriptures? It's the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a perfect cube. The city is the, is the most holy place because it is perfectly ordered. It is, it is there and God is present within it. And then it's huge. It's a huge city. Now, there's, there's various estimates about the length of the city, but most would agree that, that 12,000 stadia is about 1,500 miles. That's how large it is. 1,500 miles. So the area of this, this perfect cube appears to be what would be the approximate size at that time, especially from John's perspective, the size of the entire world, the entire Hellenistic world. He's saying that this, this city of God, he's not saying that it's only 1,500 miles and like, well, oh, that didn't even stretch across the United States. I mean, he's not saying that. He's saying that this, this city of God will take over the planet. All of the world will be covered by this city of God. God will have his presence everywhere on the planet. And think about the wealth of God, even the way he describes things. The walls... And the pavements are not simply overlaid with gold like everything else was in the Old Testament. It wasn't pure gold. There was wood underneath, even the box, the Ark of the Covenant. He's saying that every single thing, the walls, the floor, it's just pure gold. Now, what do we do with, do we value concrete that very much? I mean, we build roads out of it, right? It's pretty cheap to, to use. So in comparison, God paves the city, his city, with what we would probably value the most in this world, gold. Which is saying to us that there is stuff in his kingdom, in his city, that is worth way more than we could possibly even imagine. Because God paves the streets with gold. That's what he does. Now, it says something a little bit confusing here, and it says that the gold is kind of like translucent glass, and I want to clarify that. It's not gold that you can see through, because that would be weird, right? I don't think I've ever seen anything like that. It's, it's, when he's talking about it, he's comparing it with the glass, but John's talking about the purity of the gold. Pure glass is clear glass, isn't it? If glass is not clear, what does it mean? It's not really pure. It's got a lot of things in it. It's, it's, it's distorting the image. Then you can't see through it because it's, it's a dirty kind of glass and it's not pure. It's not, it's not perfect. John is saying that the gold and the pearls in the city are completely and utterly pure. And then he says there's precious stones. The precious stones make up the foundation. 
These are the precious stones that were set in four rows of three on the high priest's breastplate. And they reflect the beauty of God. They reflect the the tribes. They reflect the the rarity of God, the value of God. And they, they radiate the light and the splendor of God's glory. So, what's the point of the scene? Or should I say, who is the point of the scene? God. God is the point of all of it. So let's look at this section that I want us to focus our time on just for the next few minutes, verses 22 down to verse 27. So we we see it now in the grand picture, and now we, we see it a little bit more clearly. This is what's happening. And he says, and I saw no temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of a sun. Or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I want us to focus on three three truths about our reward from these verses. Notice the first. Our reward is God's presence. Our reward is God's presence. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So heaven is about God's unrelenting presence. John says that there will be no temple there. What is the purpose of a temple? What is a temple about? Well, a temple served as a meeting place for a people where they could go and have some mediation between the regular world and their God who was in a different world, they would come into this place and they would meet with Him in some kind of distant way. It's like a Skype conversation, right? Now, what grandparent in here, if you know what Skype is, would would always be happy with having your grandchildren and you could see them by Skype? You could talk to them, you could hear them, But that would be what you preferred. You prefer the Skype conversation. You don't really want them to come over for the weekend because that's just a lot of trouble. But Skype relationships, oh, that's so much better. Is that true? No. Heavens no. Why? Because in Skype, you can see them, you can hear them, but you can't touch them. You can't smell them. You can't hug them. You can't tickle them. You can't kiss them. You want to be with them. You want to physically be with them. And this is what the people of Israel had experienced. They had experienced a a Skype kind of relationship with God. They could see certain things that God was doing. They could occasionally hear certain things that God was saying. But they weren't with Him. There wasn't an intimate connection and relationship with Him. The temple only reminded them of the fact that their God really wasn't with them, really wasn't living among them. It reminded them that God himself actually lived in a different temple, a temple that wasn't made by human hands, a temple that was in the heavens, and it was perfect and holy. 
See, the temple, while it drew them nearer to God, actually also showed them that they were separated from God. The people could not enter into this temple without sacrifice. The high priest once a year could enter into the holy place, but only the high priest and only once a year he could enter into that holy place and make sacrifices. And the holy place contained the footstool of God, reminding them that this was the place where God's seat, where his feet rested there upon the earth symbolically. But John says that there's not going to be a temple in this new city. Why? Because the relationship will no longer be distant. The relationship will no longer be, be distant like Skyping relationships, but it's intimate, it's personal, it's physical. The very thing that all of us have longed for in our lives, regardless of whether you know it or not, the, the, the feeling that there's more to this life than just this, the feeling that there's more to be had, more of God to be had than just what you could experience Right now, today, in this world, God will finally live with you. Earlier in chapter 21, John said this. He said, I saw that holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And this is what he hears from the throne. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He will be with them. Everything that God has promised. The fact that Jesus himself is called Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. That will be perfectly realized in this new city. God will live with us. And all of that will come to perfect completion. And where God is, perfection is. Joy is. Peace reigns. Notice what John says in verse 23. He says, and the city has no need of a son or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. What's the purpose of light? What is the benefit of light? What does light do for you? Well, it allows you to walk without stumbling, doesn't it? It allows you to see obstacles, keeps you safe, and enables you to enjoy life more fully. It acts as a guide for you so that you can be safe when you're going about. Light casts out all shadows. It removes darkness. The light of God, the presence of God, removes the darkness of our world. Removes everything that sin has broken and distorted. One of my favorite songs is by a guy named Jason Gray. And he, he writes this song. In a couple of the lyrics, he says... He, talking about this experience when God returns, he says, broken hearts are being unbroken. Isn't that beautiful? Bitter words are being unspoken. Everything's being pulled back. The curse undone. The veil is parted. The garden gate will be left unguarded. And he says, could it be everything sad is coming untrue? God will live among us. 
Everything will be different. Everything will be perfect. But notice that he also gives us complete access to his presence. So our reward is God's presence. Secondly, our reward is God's permission. Look at verse 24. He says, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Do you remember at the beginning of the story with Adam and Eve, when they were removed from the garden, back there was, there was an angel standing in front of the pathway so that they could not go back into the garden, so they could not reach the tree of life. All of that is being reversed. No longer is there a guard. No longer is there something that's going to be restricted for us, that we can't enter into God's places. But God's places. Uh, there, there, there will no longer be places where we can't go with God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel couldn't simply just waltz into the Holy of Holies. They would be killed. And though we have more access to God than they did, we still, we're separated by time and space from God. We're separated from physical to non-physical from God. We cannot feel the touch of God. We cannot feel His breath upon us. We cannot see Him with our eyes. We are restricted in our access to him. But one day it will not be that way. We will go in. We will come out. We will experience full access to God. Finally, our reward is God's purity. Verse 27, he says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus says in in Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? Because they will see God. That's why. Only those who are pure will see the the Lord. Only those who are pure will see His kingdom. Uh, Pure meaning that which is not mixed with the world. That which is not stained by the world. Are you unstained from the world? No. So how can we see God? How can we live in the presence of God? How are we made pure? It's through the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as a great high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how how will he not purify our conscience, he says. The only way that we can enter into the presence of God on that day is through the blood of Christ. If you've not trusted in Christ to be your savior, then friend, you are the one who is unclean. You're the one who is trusting in what you're, in what God says is detestable. The things that God says are false. You're trusting in your own merit. You're trusting in your own morality. You're trusting in your own good nature, personality, your record, whatever. Those are the things God says are false. John says in chapter 20, as he's describing that day, 
or that which is good is separated from that which is evil. That which is God's is separated from that which will be led into eternal punishment. He says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what had been done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whereas if you're without Christ, trust him today. Turn away from your sin. Cry out to Jesus to save you, and he will. Heaven is going to be good. But it's not going to be good because our friends are there. It's not going to be good because we get to do all of the things that we've always wanted to do. It's not even because there's not going to be any sadness or any sickness there. Heaven is going to be good because he, the one who called us out, he is there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace And thank you for the promises that you've given to us that we might endure. We pray that you would give us courage and strength to endure this life with joy so that we might experience your presence in a way that we never even imagined. And we pray this in Jesus' name.